the bottom line of this article, last sentence, you know, it's not unrealistic that battery grade nickel prices could double from current levels. Welcome back to Rockstock Channel and thanks for checking in. Before we launch into the interview, we'd like to thank all our Patreon sponsors. And for those of you who are new, share a bit about us. RK Equity is an advisory firm run by Rodney Hooper and me, Howard Klein. We are exclusively focused on raising awareness about companies producing or developing the next generation critical raw materials that are powering Tesla's EV battery energy transition. Please register your email at rkequity.com and follow Rodney and me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Please also subscribe to this channel, Rockstock Channel on YouTube, as well as Lithium Ion Rocks on SoundCloud for our podcasts. Please note, Rodney and me are not financial advisors or broker dealers. Nothing you hear in this video is investment advice. Please do your own research and read the disclaimer at the end of this video or on our website. Thanks again for the support, and let's get into the video. Welcome back to Rockstock Channel. Matt Fernley uh, is back on for a third time. You uh, wrote another really good article in your battery materials review, and this is for kind of subscribers only. So we're just going to give a little bit of a, a preview here, but uh, I think it's a it's a must read. Uh, front page story of the February 9th edition, identifying the pinch points in the LFP supply chain, right? Because there's this concept that, you know, iron and phosphate are abundant, right? You don't have the constraints of cobalt and nickel. Is that true? LFP supply chain, we realized when we started digging into it, actually a little bit more nuanced than perhaps uh, you would think in terms of the, the raw materials. There's a lot of issues in there. Um, there's a lot of ESG issues, particularly with regards to production of phosphoric acid and which process you use. There is a, an existing process for phosphoric acid uh, production, which is used in, in China, uh, which is not, shall we say, the most environmentally friendly process. And I think realistically, if you were to set up uh, phosphoric acid production for LFP batteries outside China, you would need to use the wet process, which is a lot more environmentally friendly, but produces a lower amount of phosphoric acid that's suitable for, for battery production. Um, and, 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 you know, that could potentially be a bottleneck. Um, there are bottlenecks all the way through the system. Um, and I think people who have a slightly blasé attitude, as you said earlier, uh, are in for a nasty shock. I think there's a future for both LFP and high nickel ternary batteries. I think they'll go into slightly different applications. I think probably LFP will go more uh, mass market vehicles, but I think there's a huge market for higher nickel ternary batteries in high spec vehicles and also the, the sort of high range vehicles that are going to be needed in bigger regions like North America, for instance, where there's probably longer commuting distances. There's a market for both of them and given the size of the expansion of the EV story, um, there's a huge demand story for both ternary cathode ingredients and LFP cathode ingredients. We need to set up a supply chain for both sides, both um, the, the lithium iron phosphate side and the lithium NCM or NCA side outside China. So we need to see investment in the supply chain in Europe and, and, and possibly North Africa uh, on, the, on the phosphate side. Um, and we need to see it in, in North America and potentially Latin America as well for, for the US slash North American market. That there's a lot of investment that needs to be done. And uh, unfortunately, on the LFP side, just as on the other side, there's going to be some substantial supply bottlenecks. 
So with respect to the ingredients that go into LFP batteries, you've identified here where there are prospective pinch points. That's in phosphate rock, sulfuric acid, and iron sulfate, right? So you need high purity phosphoric acid, you're saying, and also sulfuric acid is their perspective, you know, Ioneer is going to use that, you know, sediment deposits going to use that. Like everybody takes, uh, you know, for granted that there's plenty of sulfuric acid around, but, you know, the ingredient sulfur that goes into sulfuric acid is location dependent. From my point of view, I don't see there being a shortage of sulfuric acid on a global basis, but potentially there will be shortages on regional basis because um, it's difficult sometimes to get sulfur into to some places that don't have uh, the sort of infrastructure requirements. And it's certainly difficult to transport sulfuric acid in its liquid form. So I identify geographical pinch points with sulfuric acid, global pinch points with things like phosphate rock potentially, and, and, and particularly high quality phosphate rocks. And there are particular elemental configurations that are important in phosphate rock um, for, for the processing side. And uh, you, you, you've got to make sure that you've got the right uh, elemental breakdown in your phosphate rock um, for it to be viable for, for wet process manufacture of phosphoric acids. So yeah, I, I think that there are going to be some quite substantial pinch points uh, that the market will have to deal with, particularly giving, given the bearing in mind the huge increase in uh, LFP capacity that we're seeing announced in China. And we're starting to see cathode facilities and, and battery facilities being announced in Europe and, and potentially in the US going forward. So, yeah. So do, do you see, I mean, LFP has largely been a Chinese um, technology, even though I think the original patents were in America, but they're, they're going off patent and there's, there's you know, yeah. do you see LFP battery production um, going to happen in, in meaningful size in, in Europe and the United States? Initially, I see it more in, in Europe. I think that LFP as an EV battery is more likely to be more common in Europe. Although we are seeing uh, a huge growth in LFP for stationary storage batteries globally, whether that continues to be the case as um, precursor prices rise, I don't know. But if you know, if precursor prices um, hit a, a sort of um, a common level, shall we say, then I think all things being equal, LFP will continue to gain market share in stationary storage batteries as well. And then, and then finally, uh, iron sulfate, right? Like Elon Musk says, iron's abundant, right? So when I think of iron ore, I think of, you know, the Pilbara and, and, and Brazil, and you're shipping 62%, you know, iron to go into blast furnaces. And, and that's abundant, and that's a highly volatile price. Yeah. But that's not what's going into the battery. That, that's what, not what's actually used um, at the current time for production of, of lithium iron phosphate. Um, generally, the industry is using iron sulfate, which derives from the TiO2 industry, or, or sometimes iron chloride, um, which can derive from the from the as I said the TiO2 industry, or alternatively for as the waste product from the steel industry. So it, it's not um, it's not hematite ore or magnetite ore that's going into to manufacture of. Uh, LFP at the moment. So yeah, potentially that is another substantial bottleneck in the in the system. When Elon Musk says iron's abundant, it's not even necessarily iron, 
right? It's titanium or a steel byproduct. What's used currently is a byproduct from processing in the titanium industry, yeah, or the steel Okay, yeah. so, okay. Very interesting, thank you. With the cost, one of the main reasons to adopt LFP over high nickel chemistries, we will be monitoring carefully how battery technology adoption evolves. With iron phosphate prices also rising rapidly, the higher carbon prices have quickly negated the relative cost advantage of LFP-based cathodes. In fact, the lower margin applications have seen the financial rationale for LFP cathodes disappear. There's some future EV launches which are counting on low-cost LFP batteries to justify the decision may not happen quite as predicted. There will be a greater focus on the higher average energy consumption required to produce an LFP-based battery versus an NMC-based battery, and especially on the significantly lower metal recovery value per kilowatt hour when thinking about end-of-life recycling factors. Perhaps for all of these reasons, it's clear to us from our many conversations with leading OEMs that there is no intention of moving away from high nickel cathodes, which require lithium hydroxide in their higher performance and higher margin vehicles. How high can the nickel price go is uh, your latest article. But uh, before we go into that, I have a couple of slides I want to go through. Uh, the first is our nickel scoreboard and a, as a comparator to our lithium scoreboard. I think we talked about there, there were nine unicorns, you know, billion dollar, you know, pre-revenue developers in lithium. If you look at the nickel companies, you've had you had M&A, um, you had Wailu and BHP for neurons. You had Horizonte Minerals um, got full financed. You know, um, you had Talon uh, did a deal with Palinghurst and then Tesla. We'll talk about that a little bit. And then you had IGO for Western areas. Um, the nickel price has been going up. Not you know, it's a ten year highs, but not parabolic yet like lithium. So you've had deal making. But the valuations, like on, on our scoreboard, why aren't there any nickel unicorns? Yeah, I think there's a real lack of understanding among investors um, about how important nickel is to the energy transition. I think part of the problem is, you know, similar to, to manganese, high purity manganese, there's a whole other market out there. And people think of nickel and they automatically think of stainless steel and they go, well, you know, huge market, um, you know, batteries, small percent. Uh, not really going to sort of make a big impact. But the, the fact is that batteries are going to make a huge impact. And we see the nickel, you know, market, uh, well, we see the battery grade nickel market going up by multiples over the next 10 years. And in fact, even if you take the nickel market as a whole, we're looking at that entire market to double. And that's a big market. Batteries is going to be have a huge impact on nickel demand. I have to say, for me at the moment, Nickel is one of the materials which excites me the most. There are very few companies or stocks to actually invest in. There's some really you know, strong um, value opportunities out there. I'd say people should do their own research. But for me, looking in as a professional investor, there's some really interesting stories out there on the nickel side. Well, thanks for that. And, and the lack of investor understanding is very much a reason why we're having you on to help broaden the reach uh, and understanding of, of the market. And um, I have not a ton of you know, um, 
experience with nickel um we, we do represent talon you know there's class one nickel it's kind of like you know upper class lower class is how i, I would consider it or, or tier one you know, versus tier two and and then there's sulfide and laterite but you know laterite could be class one um but it, it's harder to get there so I've come to understand that sulfides are better than laterites, right? Um, they're cheaper, they're uh, yeah. but, 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 but they're much more scarce. Okay. And they're more environmentally friendly. So if you could find a sulfide deposit versus a laterite deposit, you know, that's, that's great. And Talon's a sulfide deposit. And then if you could have a high grade versus a low grade sulfide deposit, you, you want a high grade um, sulfide deposit. So if, um, let's talk about that, but I also, I'm gonna share my screen because I, I wanna just put a, a, a chart of the nickel price in 2001, okay? Mm -hmm. That was the first super cycle, you know, China led demand, you know, the, the whole China super cycle was from 2000 to kind of 2007. Then you had mm -hmm. the financial crisis, but I mean, that's a, we're talking about now it's $23,000 is the highest price in 10 years. So mm -hmm. it's a nice trajectory, but if you look at what happened in 2000, like explain what happened, you know, in 2000, like there's this huge rise and then that, that big crash, yeah. um, you well, know, and then the rise again, like, like what's been happening yeah. across this. So, I mean, I mean, it was a, it was kind of a similar situation to, to what's happening today in many of the battery materials in 2001, 2002, we obviously had a big, uh, stock market and, and in fact um, industrial production correction in 2000 2001 and um, a lot of material prices uh, got taken to the cleaners quite frankly and then <clears throat> China sort of started to emerge and what we picked up on first of all was there was this huge clear out of inventories so metal exchange inventories were pretty elevated levels because uh, industrial production growth globally or in the Western world was pretty weak. And over a period of about sort of 12 to 18 months, there was a big clear out, a very big drop in inventories. And um, then we started to see imports picking up into China from overseas. And it was the beginning of the fixed asset um, investment event in China. So this huge urbanization event, which took place over about a 10 or 15 year period. Um, and, you know, at that point, um, most of nickel production was class one, upper class, as we call it now. Um, and most of it was based on sulfides. And um, basically, um, it, 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 it cleared out very rapidly. So we were talking very, very low inventories. And of course, there's a very close relationship between inventories and prices. And the price just shot up. Um, then two things happened at once. First of all, so you've got that peak in sort of around about 2007. Uh, first of all, there was this little thing called the global financial crisis, uh, which was a little bit of a disaster because uh, nickel is traded on the LME. So it's an exchange traded product. Uh, so um, there was a real collapse in, in LME prices. And then the second thing that came out around that period was uh, this development called nickel pig iron. So uh, nickel pig iron is class two nickel, so it's lower class nickel. And um, basically nickel pig iron um, is derived from 
what we call low-grade laterite ore bodies. Now, laterite ore bodies are a different type of mineralogy from the sulfide ore bodies that had traditionally been mined, which are very difficult to break down. In order to process those minerals, one needs to use what's called a pressure acid leach, so PAL, uh, and in some cases a high pressure acid leach, HPAL, is what it's known as in the industry. Now these HPAL projects um, have been around for, for quite some time. Um, there was a lot of investment in them in Australia in the 90s, and they were supposed to be the next big thing for nickel. Um, and unfortunately, once a lot of them were built, it was found that they didn't work as well as advertised. They have very significant capital costs, and uh, they, they never, or they took a long time to reach their designed uh, production capacity. And in many cases, they never did reach their designed production capacity. So there were a lot of problems with the processing developments of these assets. To get around that, um, uh, a very clever company called Singshan, a Chinese company, um, invented this process called nickel pig iron. And nickel pig iron effectively takes a low-grade laterite ore body and it sort of semi-processes it uh, using a, what we call a pyrometallurgical technique um, into this sort of low-grade iron nickel alloy. Um, which can effectively be used in stainless steel. And that's been a huge growth area um, to source nickel from over the last sort of 10 to 15 years. And, and that's responsible for a lot of the fall in nickel prices and then the depressed nickel price over time. Now we move into the battery industry, really to produce battery grade nickel, um, you need to use either nickel from a, from a sulfide ore body so um, nickel metal or briquettes, and then um, process that into nickel sulfate, which is the key intermediate, or you need to use um, uh, nickel from a, from a class one laterite ore body, which effectively means um, an H power or a power project. And that produces a sort of intermediate product, which we call a mixed hydroxide product. And then that mixed hydroxide product is further processed into, um, nickel intermediates for the battery industry. Um, so yeah, that's, that is the posit um, story of nickel, but obviously with the battery industry coming on to the, the, um, into the industry, uh, into the market now, we're starting to see a very substantial rise in demand and we cannot use, or, or we, um, most of us cannot use class two nickel um, to as a source for, for battery grade nickel. Um, now, Singshan has um, a process which upgrades um, class two nickel products into nickel pig iron and then into uh, an intermediate material called nickel mat. Now, this has been done at, at uh, one operation in Indonesia um, and basically. Um, it um, came into production at the end of last year. And the issue with this process is it uses uh, what we call pyrometallurgy, which is very carbon intensive, and is, uses it twice. So it uses pyrometallurgy to upgrade the nickel laterite ore into nickel pig iron, and then it uses pyrometallurgy to, to upgrade the nickel pig iron into mat. Um, so it's a, uh, almost a double negative in terms of processing very energy intensive and therefore very carbon intensive. Um, and the only 
asset in the world that does this is in Indonesia, and it's powered by a grid that's powered effectively by coal. So it's quite a dirty process. And then this material is then shipped to China where it's processed again using the Chinese grid, which again is 70 to 80% hydrocarbons, which is very dirty. So a lot of us don't feel that this uh, nickel pig iron process is going to be viable to be used by Western world OEMs, which are very focused on the, on the carbon intensity of the processing. Matt, uh, you mentioned in the article about the qualification process. Um, be interesting to discuss a bit about how that time delay could put pressure on the supply chain. This is something that long-term investors in the mining industry always get wrong. Um, basically, when we talk about lithium or nickel or high-purity manganese, we're not talking about commodities. We're talking about specialty chemicals and, and the... Um, the specifications of these products are so, so tight. Um, and whether, uh, for instance, a nickel product has three parts per million, so parts per million of, of iron, or whether it has 10 parts per million of iron can make a difference in a battery manufacturing process. What we see now increasingly uh, as standard in the industry is that a raw material project has to go through qualification uh, with its end user. And that basically means um, a process of testing uh, to make sure that the product that it's going to be manufacturing is acceptable to the battery industry. Now, in the past, in a bulk standard mining project, you might do maybe 50 to 100 kilograms of sample testing just to make sure that your processing method was right. In uh, qualification for the battery industry, we're probably talking about maybe a tonne, up to five tonnes of material that needs to be processed. Uh, if you're selling out material for battery intermediates, you need to produce maybe half a tonne, a tonne uh, that goes to each of the cell makers, each of the cathode makers, so they can run uh, the material through the system to make sure it works. So what we see increasingly now is uh, different stages of development. Um, the initial stage when you just run through um, your system to make sure that the uh, ore body can be developed. Then uh, there'll be cathode performance testing and you'll basically need to build a pilot plant and demonstration plant to make sure that you can produce product consistently. And then there are effectively cell performance testing, which is a, a, a longer and in-depth um, testing methodology. And effectively, this is taking 12, 18 months, maybe two years of qualification processing with the um, downstream user of the materials. It's totally different to the sort of testing regime that we have for commodity nickel or commodity manganese or commodity lithium. With, with LFP, Matt, you, you know, you can have a bit of a workaround if it's carbonate going in, if it's to, you know, energy yeah. storage or something that can be a bit okay. more variability, but... Okay. Just to clarify for the listeners in the battery industry for nickel, that, that workaround doesn't really exist. As we move into higher nickel shares in um, ternary batteries, we're lowering the amount of cobalt in the battery. Now, historically over time, the cobalt has been a stabilizing factor in the battery. As we look at higher nickel batteries with lower cobalt concentrations, that means that the specification of the nickel and the purity of the nickel is that much more important. The specifications for nickel are getting tighter over time. Specifications are getting tighter 
in LFP, but they are extremely tight in, in ternary, particularly on the nickel cobalt manganese side. You also mentioned the doubling of the price potentially from here. And we look at the sort of short term sort of supply demand issues in, in nickel. Uh, last year, I think uh, class one nickel production was down by sort of 70 to 100,000 tons. Um, some of that will come back into the market this year. Um, there'll be, uh, you know, some nickel production from the Singshan method, but probably not a huge amount. And there'll be some more production in from Indonesia. Now, um, if you look at um, nickel inventories, they fell by, I think, 150, 160,000 tonnes last year. So we're clearly seeing a demand event in nickel as well as a, as a lack of supply event. And I think the demand event will only get larger over time. Uh, we saw a huge increase, um, something like a seven or eight fold increase in Chinese nickel sulfate imports last year, um, a big increase in, in Chinese refined nickel imports, net imports. Um, and that talks to a you know, substantial demand event happening. Um, and I think it's coming off the back of the acceleration in EV sales. And I mean, you talked about the, the exchange inventories there. And I think that's very, very important. We're down to just under 11 days of uh, inventories on exchange. If I look at the price inventory relationship uh, between prices and exchange inventories, uh, generally around about 11 days, you would expect the price to be probably 40 to 50% above the level it is now. And if I'm right and, and demand continues to accelerate for nickel this year in 2022, um, my personal feeling is that I think that the Indonesian H power projects will not produce as much material as many in the market are expecting. And if that's the case, then inventories will fall even further. And if inventories do continue to fall, you know, by the time we get to sort of seven or eight days, then it's very possible that nickel um, prices could, could double from current levels. So I think there's a lot of upside in the market at the moment. This is the LME chart here that shows it's at nearly 24,000. You know, if that were to double, that would be where it was at its highs. And what time frame, right? Do you see like a parabolic rise like has just happened with lithium? It's going to come down to what it came down in, in, to in lithium, which is how fast the inventories get cleared out. So if we see a situation like we did in lithium, where the inventories take about three or four months to clear out, um, then it'll take, you know, probably what, six, eight, 10 months or whatever for prices to increase. Uh, if inventories go faster, if we get, you know, people say, looking at inventories and going, oh, crikey, um, I better go and build some stocks now because I'm, I'm a little bit worried that uh, there's not going to be enough nickel and we get some panic buying, then it could move faster than that. Mm -hmm. uh, my gut feeling is, you know, if we look at the nickel price in 12 months, it will be between uh, the LME nickel price, it will be between 50 and 100 percent higher than it currently is. I want to go to our nickel scoreboard at, at the top of the developer scoreboard. You have Neurant at 473 million. They were the subject of uh, a, a multiple bidding war with Andrew Forrest's Wailu and BHP. There's Talon, there's Panoramic, Horizonte. So there's Canada, US, Australia, Brazil, Brazil, Australia, Canada. If you go down this list, you have been suggesting that you like 
you know, you think the low grade sulfides in Canada have potential. There's not a lot of high grade sulfides. You know, Talon's a high grade sulfide. Order of preference. Uh, generally, over time, it's been high grade sulfide, top of the tree. Um, then it's been laterite. I increasingly now, with a shortage of supply, I think that low grade sulfide looks of interest, primarily because low grade sulfide is normally polymetallic. So it has other metals in there as well, which might be PGMs or it might be copper. And also because if you look at the low grade sulfides uh, and on, for instance, a copper equivalent basis, um, they're equivalent grades to the copper uh, assets that are currently being mined in Latin America. So, you know, for me, if you're going to be mining those low-grade low copper assets in Latin America, what's the problem with mining low-grade nickel sulfide projects um, if you can do so economically? And in fact, these, these things are very economic indeed. So that's, that's my reason for focusing on, on low-grade sulfide projects or lower-grade sulfide projects, of which there are quite a few. But obviously, if you are going to look at nickel, you prefer to get a a large, long-life, high-grade sulfide project, but given that there's vanishingly few of those around, I think that probably lower-grade sulfide projects for me look more interesting than than laterite projects. The Western areas, do you know much about Western areas? Because they they're getting acquired, I think, by IGO. That was a 785 million market value, approximately. I think they have one producing mine and one development mine. Like why, why are these not unicorns? Western areas, similar to, to a number of the Australian quite high grade sulfide projects, they're quite small, small operations. So they are very high grade. Um, they're generally underground um, and they're short life operations. So they might have a mine life of say 10 to 12 years you know, how they operate, they're very profitable operations. But for the majors, if I'm a BHP or a Rio, if I'm putting myself in their boats, what I'm looking for is something that's going to have a 20 to 30 year mine life, where I'm going to be able to generate, you know, hundreds of millions, multiple hundreds of millions of dollars of EBITDA. And I think that the issue with a lot of these Australian operations is while, you know, for a single commodity stock, they're very interesting as assets. They're very profitable. They're going to make money for 10 years. But for the majors, they're not really um, an asset that's going to float their boat. Majors are looking for long life, low cost, and they don't mind dropping a couple of billion into CapEx if they're going to get lots of profits and they're going to be able to operate it for a long life. Okay. So um, IGO's main nickel mine uh, was this Nova Bollinger. Um, uh, and which is, but they paid a billion dollars for that when nickel prices were much lower, but that was only a 10 year mine life mine. So a few years ago, nickel prices were lower, but prices to NPV paid were a lot higher. It seems to be a, a bit of a disconnect here. There's um, definitely been a derating of nickel in line with many materials slash commodities over the last four or five years, hopefully with higher prices we'll start to see a re-rating as we're starting to see in the lithium space. I do expect that nickel takeout multiples will start to re-rate over time as, as people realize, you know, how scarce the, these nickel projects actually are.
just a couple more questions. And in, in, again, looking at this scoreboard, when I think about talent and I think about like the complexity and CapEx of um, projects, right? So uh, the process to make a concentrate, it's a base metal. I mean, the installed knowledge base throughout the world for this is a lot higher than it is for lithium, right? So, so there, there's skills and, and technical, and then there's capital, right? So if you were to say, the top tier is high grade sulfide, right? And then mid grade or low grade sulfide, you know, and then laterite. You said the HPAL is complicated, very high capex and dirty. In the case of a high grade mine where all you're doing is making a concentrate, mm. you know, in Talon's case, as I understand it, it's, it's low capex and relatively simple process, right? You, you, yeah, I mean, you, I, I think that's a very, it's a very simple process. It's a known process, you know, producing a nickel concentrate or cobalt concentrate or whatever uh it's a very easy uh it's a very easy process it's done at practically every mine around the world so it's certainly not reinventing the wheel here um you know this is a very common process so if you just take mining and concentrating you know 90 percent of mining management teams in the world will be able to do that with no problem at all I think it's really going to continue doing what it does, I mean, and I think it will run into its own challenges with nickel at some point. It's not there yet, but we've all stopped talking about the nickel challenge because LFP prices have caught people's attention, but there's still going to be a nickel challenge for those high nickel batteries as well. 